Some of you may know the name John Donne. He was a 17th century poet and he wrote these words. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. So I mentioned to my son that I was using this as an introduction. He said, it's a bit sombre, isn't it? It sounds a bit down. Um, But I said, well, no, I came across this as I was preparing for for the sermon this week and it, it didn't sound sombre to me. I know that perhaps for you also you might um, have picked up on two familiar phrases, no man is an island and for whom the bell tolls and I had never realised they came from the same place, the same little paragraph of writing. But this phrase, no man is an island, really sort of leapt out at me and struck me as very fitting for the text that we're looking at today. No man is an island entire of itself. We are born to be in relationship with God and with each other. And if you were listening last week, Gillian mentioned this and she gave us a good lead into this passage today. She reminded us that those who belong to Jesus have an assurance of eternity and we're to live in accordance with that identity, living in a way that pleases God. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 12 to 28 talks about these things. So as we've come together after this long period of not being able to, it talks to us about how we relate to each other, to the leaders among us, to our fellow believers and to God himself. And not just our conduct as an individual but as a community of believers. In other words, it teaches us about our identity and how to live and it speaks of hope. Hope in the one who calls, who is faithful and who will do it. So we'll get to what the it is a little bit later. But first, as John pointed out and as we lit the, the candle today is the first week of Advent and I thought it was also worth mentioning that Um, this morning because of the fact that in this letter that we've been looking at over these last weeks it refers again and time and again to Jesus coming again and what we share today is to encourage us how we are to live while we wait. So we want to live worthy lives in the blamelessness that he gives to us in the hope of his coming and of his sanctification in our lives through and through. So here is the hope and the holiness that we've been looking at over this last eight weeks, the call to become into his kingdom and glory, the call to holiness, but it's God who calls and it's God who sanctifies. So our hope, our call to hope and holiness is in him and our hope and holiness are here now when we are in Christ but they're also coming. It's that wonderful thing. As we start Advent, we remember that Christ came as a child to Bethlehem, born at Bethlehem, Emmanuel, God with us. And he lived for a time like us in this broken world, 
but we're looking to the day he's going to come again. And then it's going to be victory and it's going to be completion and we're going to have this gathering together of his people, living with him in newness and perfection. Our hope and our holiness are going to be totally satisfied. But while we wait, how do we live? And in particular, how do we live as a community of believers? Well, thank God that we have his word to us. The word which in Hebrews 4.12 tells us is living and active and in 2 Timothy it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5.12-28 we read and we hear and we see how we are to live as a community of believers in hope and holiness while we wait for the Lord to come again. And as we work our way through the text today, I believe it shows us three ways of living and relating. And that is respectfully, peacefully and blamelessly. So what we're going to do is just work our way through these verses. And I'm praying that the Lord will enliven them to us today. That as we just take time to pause over these verses, that uh, instead of just reading through um, and sensing the familiarity of them, that we'll just take a moment to pause and to hear from God what he is saying to us in these verses. And it starts with, we ask you brothers, brothers and sisters, if we're going on the other the translation we use today, to give recognition to those who labour among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you. Well, your translation, like mine, might just read brothers, but it's not the first time he refers to them as his brothers or as his family. Starting in chapter 1, verse 4, we have brothers loved by God and then chapter 2, it's brothers, remember brothers, for you brothers, but brothers. Chapter 3, Timothy, who is our brother, therefore brothers. Chapter 4, finally brothers, we urge you brothers, brothers we do not want. Chapter 5, brothers, but you brothers, we ask you brothers, we urge you brothers. Brothers pray, greet all the brothers, Read to all the brothers. Do you get a sense that uh, Paul's fairly adamant about the brotherhood in this letter to the church of the Thessalonians, that they are his brothers, or as our Christian Standard Bible reminds us, brothers and sisters, church family. And he asks them. He doesn't command them. It's not, you must do this. It's a request between people who love each other. He asks them to give recognition to those who labour among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you. So we are to recognise, give recognition, to recognise, to know, to observe, to acknowledge those who are doing the labouring. In some translations it speaks of those who are over you in the Lord and that just jars a bit to our modern ears I think but if you look at Paul's ministry with the Thessalonians Paul could claim to be over them in many ways he outlined his ministry in chapter 2 he was a leader he comforted encouraged and urged and preached and he was a hard worker in their midst but in chapter 2 verse 6 he didn't look for the praise of men neither from them nor anyone else He loved them and in verse 8 it said he was delighted to share with them not only the gospel of God but his very life as well because they were dear to him. Paul was not averse to pointing out in various places that he was worthy of recognition but I think he's wanting those who are in this church, this young church, 
um, especially those who are leading, to get the recognition of their work. So the labour and the leading and the admonition arise out of love and service to the congregation. Then comes a mutual response of respect, to be regard them in highly and love because of their work. Now, we've been looking at this letter and we understand that the Thessalonian church was new and the leaders were not only new to a life of faith in Christ, they were experiencing severe persecution. Paul and his fellow workers, as you know, have moved on. If you cast your mind back to the first of the series, series John took us through Acts chapter 17 and the report of what happened. And there were people like the, the name Jason was mentioned. He was obviously a leader in this new church at, at Thessalonica. And you'll remember that, that their, his house was stormed by officials and people who were upset about what was going on. And they were dragged off and brought before the city officials and he, had, he and his um, co-workers had to uh, pay a bond. There was a great uproar. And they were facing challenges on all sides. They were trying to lead this new church well and face the brunt of persecution from many, including influential people in the city. And we know that there was this deep bond that Paul shared with them and he wants to encourage them. No doubt he wanted to encourage those leaders and the congregation to care for them as they would if he were there for himself. But he's not into a cult of celebrity. He's asking the Thessalonians to look after those who are doing the labouring there and to respect them. And the respect and the recognition he asks isn't that you think that they think too highly or too lowly of them. They respect them not because of a particular title or position that they've been given, but because of their work. So it's not about a title. Same for us in our own church experience. It's not that we just give respect to someone who has a title, to the elders, leadership council or the pastoral team because of a particular title they have but we give respect to any who are demonstrating leadership in the way they work and serve, who labour, who lead and who admonish. And they might be doing that with or without a title. It's particularly timely as we come to our meeting tonight to consider leadership matters. So in verses 12 to 13, we have this responsibility of the leaders to the congregation, which is to work hard, to labour, to lead and to admonish. And that word admonish conjures up for me sometimes that sense of punishment, but it's not about punishment, it's about correcting and keeping to the straight and narrow. So my paraphrase then would be to serve, to model, to guide, to teach. And the responsibility of the congregation to the leaders is to respect them to hold them in high regard, in love. My paraphrase would be recognise and acknowledge. So the question, how do we live in hope and holiness? By living respectfully of leaders in our church. And then moving on, we have this list, a long list of responsibilities of the members of the congregation towards each other. Be at peace among yourselves, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone, ensure there is no vengeance, pursue what is good for one another and for all, 
my translation it says, try to be kind to each other and everyone else. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, don't stifle the spirit, don't despise prophecies, test all things, hold to what is good, stay away from every kind of evil. Now I happen to love lists. I really love lists. Our old fashioned handwritten lists and I make lists about everything. And sometimes I put really obvious things on my list. Now, it's not as if I'm going to forget that I need to do the dishes or the washing or the grocery shopping, but they go on my list anyway because it's the way I process what I've got to do. And if you're like me, uh, it's also really wonderful when you have those things on the list because then there's more things to mark off and there's such a sense of satisfaction when you mark those things off your list. I can see some smiles because I can see there are other list people here who have that wonderful feeling when they mark something off their list. So here we have this good long list of ways to live and it, it's like the mum or dad. You know, was that parental figure, he he expressed that in chapter 2. It's like mum and dad listing off all the things that the older teenager has to be aware of before they set off uh, and leave them in charge of the house or the packing and final instructions that you give your child when they're going off to camp. Don't forget, did you pack? Have you got? Now if you need this long list and first and foremost in this list we have the charge to live in peace with each other to have peace among ourselves. Well, that's a pretty amazing task. As I was reading, I came across comments by Michael Martin. He made comments in the New American Commentary on this passage, speaking to the complexity of the church and the challenges that exist for us as we seek to live peacefully with each other because, in his words, the Christian assembly in Thessalonica, indeed the church in most instances, instances is a complex entity including a great variety of personalities. There are leaders and followers, those weak in the faith, those who are strong, the optimists, the pessimists, the cynical, the gullible. These and others must coexist in the church and must learn how to love one another and work with one another for the encouraging and building up of each other. Well, If you pause and think about that, you'd say that's quite a task. To live peacefully with each other and learn how to love one another. And I just thought, well, no wonder Paul talks about labour and toil because it's a pretty hard job given our variety of strengths and weaknesses to learn how to love one another and to love one another well and deeply and to be light and salt to the world around us. And again, I think this is a timely passage to challenge us. This is a holy task to live peacefully with each other and it involves all the things that follow in the list. Over previous weeks we touched on the idea of those who were idle and timid, perhaps struggled to understand the persecution that they were undergoing, those who were discouraged because some had died without seeing the promise of Christ's return and Paul urges warnings and encouragement and help and patience, a demonstration of love and of living peacefully together. We talked about this in our Wednesday night study, how we need to be good listeners, not just hear what's happening, but really good listeners about what's happening with those around us so that we are aware 
and not just aware but so we can respond to the needs that exist for our family, our church family particularly. In verse 15 it says, See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. The NIV reads, Try to be kind to each other and everyone else. Now, it's not just give it a try, give it a faint-hearted attempt. No, it's much stronger. Vigorously pursue this. It comes out in that um, CSB's translation to pursue what is good for one another. We're to do our utmost to be kind to each other, kind to those of our church community and to everyone else. Firstly, demonstrating kindness amongst ourselves, loving each other well, living peacefully with each other and then an overflow of that is a kindness to those around. John 13 reminds us, by this shall all men know that we are his disciples if we have love one for another. What a testimony to the world when we can love each other well, be at peace amongst ourselves and then it overflows to all around. Verses 16 to 18, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's one of those um, passages that gets quoted quite a lot. And I was surprised that commentaries are talking about the fact that it's not just um, a word to individuals about being happy all the time and praying 24-7 and glad despite difficult circumstances. I mean, it would be false to think that we're happy all the time. I can honestly say the last two days I haven't felt particularly happy. But there is a difference between an external happy face and the deep joy that we have within when we have Christ. And, And certainly it's wonderful when you come across someone who that joy is just bubbling out from them and you sense that they're bathed in prayer and that they are thankful. And it, that is a glorious thing and uh, I aspire to be more like that. But we know that we aren't um, away in a cupboard just sitting with God in prayer 24 hours a day. So this is about our attitude and as I say, the, the commentary is talking about the communal nature of this, that when we gather, these are opportunities that we have to praise God, to remember answered prayer, to be hopeful for the things we've prayed for, to pray. In, all, in other words, we're praising and we're prayerful and we're thankful in the time that we gather together. And that renews us and builds us and it's a time for everyone to participate in giving praise and prayer and thanksgiving. And what is amazing, the most amazing part of all, it says that when we do these things, we can be confident it's God's will for us in Christ Jesus. Now, it's a bit of a soapbox of mine when we talk about God's will. You hear people saying, I'm seeking God's will for this or I'd like to know God's will for that, particularly when I was younger. Um, You know, what's God's will in this particular area? And As I say, it's a bit of a soapbox for me because I think God tells us quite a lot about what his will for us is. Uh, It's here. We don't have to look far. In 1 Thessalonians, it's about rejoicing and being prayerful and about being thankful. And in Romans 12, it speaks to us of testing and approving God's will, his pleasing and perfect will, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, being transformed by the renewing of our minds 
And if any of you are taking notes, if you look at uh, Romans 12 verses 9 to 21, you'll also find another list of behaviours and ways to live that sit very closely in conjunction with this list that we're looking at in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Then we come to verses 19 and 22. Don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. But test all things, hold to what is good and stay away from every kind of evil. And here we have a challenge to be neither too cynical nor too gullible about what is presented, especially what is presented as from God. We are to test it. If you remember again the passage in Acts 17 when Paul moved on from Thessalonica to Berea It talked about the Bereans being of a much more noble character because they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Now the new Thessalonican church needed to be careful in what they accepted as revelation from God. We thankfully have his word to us here, brought down to us through the centuries, but this is a call to us to test everything in order to discern the good from the evil and therefore hold to the good and avoid the evil. We know that we live in a world that's got lies and deception and twisted truth and subtle mistruths and the books and the movies and the music and even the sermons that we can listen to from wherever they come, can we're not immune, They're not, none of them are immune, no area is immune from presenting less than the complete truth. So the call to test everything is relevant to us. It's an encouragement to examine the scripture, whether that's in your personal devotions and group study, to read his word, to sing his word like we did this morning, to pray with his words. I, as I thought about this, I thought about this discerning the good from the evil and, and knowing what is authentic and what is God's word to us, what is true from the spirit. Uh, I thought of a story that Gerald, I believe, has shared here before. I'm going to repeat it again in case uh, some of you missed that. And was talking about people who are trained to, um, to discover counterfeit notes, counterfeit banknotes. And the way that they're trained isn't that they put out a selection of fake notes and get people to pick what, what's wrong with the note. No, they completely consume themselves with the study of the real banknotes. And they examine that banknote so much, so often, so frequently, so carefully and in such a detailed way that when a counterfeit note is put before them, they immediately know it's counterfeit. Not because they have to look for what is fake about it, but because they know so faithfully what a true banknote is and they've been so consumed in that study, it is immediately obvious to them that this one is a fake. This is how we have to live. So immersed in God's word and the truth of his word, examining it so closely that it becomes obvious to us when something is amiss, when something is not true, that we can test these things, hold to the good, stay away from the evil. And here's another benefit of community. As we grow in that, some who are more experienced, who, who have immersed themselves longer, who can guide us in the process of seeing what is authentic, we can grow in our discernment. How do we live in hope and holiness? We're to live peacefully with each other and with everyone else. 
And thirdly, how do we live in hope and holiness? We to live blamelessly. Your first instinct might be like mine, well, that's impossible. It is impossible if we rely on ourselves, but in the same way that we can live respectfully when we know our identity and place in Christ and therefore can give due respect to others, and in the same way we can live peacefully with others because through our identity in Christ we have peace within ourselves, we can live blamelessly through our identity in Christ because we come confessing our sin and then we trust in his faithfulness and his forgiveness to cleanse us and he presents us as blameless and faultless. Verse 23 says, "My God, the, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, He who calls you is faithful He will do it. God himself, not the idol of self or wealth or pleasure that just brings us temporary satisfaction or brings satisfaction to part of us. We look to God himself for complete wholeness in every part of us and that he will keep us in eternity. Our holiness is a gift from God. God himself is the one who takes our blame. He sanctifies us through and through so that we may be completely blameless at his coming. He will do it. Sanctify us. That's the it that he's going to do. He's going to sanctify us. Our love response is that we work in cooperation with his work to sanctify us. We live worthy of this call into his kingdom and glory. But it is God himself the one who calls, God himself the faithful one, God himself the one who will do it. He will make us holy. He asks us to be holy but he is the one who makes us holy. When our identity is in him, he guards and protects us, makes us ready for his coming and for judgment. And it's not an excuse, you know, in the Romans it talks about, well, so, oh, okay, well, if God's going to do it then I can just go off and live however I want. No, We want to live worthy lives and we want to exchange this blame that sits squarely on our shoulders for a blamelessness that he gives to us. So how do we live in hope and holiness? By living blamelessly. Now we've only really reached verse 25. The end of the letter is not yet. We have a short addendum. And I figure this is really like mum who's given all these instructions to the people who are driving off in the car uh, and they've turned the corner and then mum's sort of one more thing or a couple more things that I, I just ah, want to let them know. So the vehicle's taken off with a young adult on the big adventure. Mum remembers one more thing. Bing! Text message. Uh, verses 25 to 27. A little bit more about how we are to live peacefully with our fellow believers. And uh, I've put here, it, it, you could consider it a mini three-point sermon in three sentences. Brothers and sisters, pray for us also. So there's sharing in prayer. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. Sharing affection. I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. Sharing God's word. So there's a little bit more about how we're to live peacefully with each other. And then comes verse 28, a benediction. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 1 Thessalonians 1.1, Paul started with grace and peace. And here he signs off in his own hand and blesses his fellow believers, his brothers and sisters of the church at Thessalonica, with a prayer of the grace of God to be with them. A grace not of his making or of our own making, of our own strength, of our own labour, our own lists of ways to live, but a grace that comes from the Lord Jesus, from God, God himself, the God of peace, the sanctifier, the holy one, the faithful one, the one who will do it, who gives hope, who will keep us until he comes again. How do we live in hope and holiness while we wait for the coming of the Lord? We live called to live respectfully, peacefully, blamelessly, from beginning to end, 1 Thessalonians 1.1 to 1 Thessalonians 5.28, in God and in Christ is our hope and our holiness. So as I end today, let us take the words of Paul from this letter to the Thessalonian believers, the words of God to us today, and may you and may we together know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with us as a community of believers here at Roval Baptist Church. Amen.